Whenever you rent or buy a video, you need to be sure that the film you choose is suitable for the audience at home. Do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hail weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and my guest today is here to tell us that everyone is now part of his dream. Everyone. Welcome, Jez Conley. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very well, Andrew. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a real pleasure to talk about this film, which is a you know, it's got a very special place in my in my heart, I guess. Um, so I'm always happy to sort of chew the fact about this film. Yes, we'll we'll, we'll definitely get to that later. Um, what have you been up to? Have you been working on anything? Uh, we'll get into your books in a second, but um... Um, well, re- I mean, I, I was thinking actually before we started this, but what what kind of a writer am I? I don't know what sort of a writer I'm really. I'm not an academic. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a fanboy writer, really. Um, I'm sort of none of the above, really. I used to be a, a, an academic librarian. So I'm, I've done a lot of the kind of, I'm familiar with academic rigor when it comes to like writing about, about cinema and all about that. So I can do that stuff. But I always never really wanted to write stuff like that for publication. I always wanted to be a bit more, a bit more sort of like passionate about it, bringing a bit more kind of love for want of a better word, really. And so that's what I try to do. So the, the things that I've had published tend to be quite sort of subjective. They're not really academic texts particularly, but they do, hopefully they've got a bit of that sort of rigor that you'd expect from, from that side of things. But uh, hopefully they, they represent enjoyable reads and, and kind of passionate reads, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've got a few things published, but I'm, and I'm still doing various things. But increasingly, I'm actually writing fiction these days. Um, one of the things I mentioned, I was an academic librarian. I've actually retired last year. So I'm, I'm actually a gentleman of leisure these days, which I can, means I can write whatever I want to. And I have, I have been. Um, so I'm still keeping my hand in with the, with the non-fiction, but I'm increasingly writing uh, horror short fiction these days yeah I, I i feel the same really i don't i don't i i mean i do i i kind of teach at a university a little bit i don't do i'm not full-time or anything i just do bits and pieces at university and it's all kind of film related um but uh, and again but i've never really seen myself as academic at all you know I'm, i wonder what i'm doing there sometimes i mean i love it i really do love it but i'm like you know, students will say, I just feel like, you know, I'm not an academic. I'm just here. I'm just ballooning on about films. That's all I'm doing, you know. And it's same with the writing as well. I'm similar to you, really. I don't, I don't really fall. I'm not a journalist. I've never really fallen into that category of um, being a film critic. I don't really do that. I, 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 I've been very lucky in the fact that everything I've been able to write it's been about films that I'm really passionate about and I want to sort of put out there or, or it's about a genre or a subject that I'm really, I don't really, I, I get why people do it. And I think you need critics because otherwise you get the art that you deserve. But I, I, I'm happy for other people to do that. I, I like to look at things yeah. and examine things and offer different opinions, but 
uh, and and do a kind of analysis, if you like, in, in some ways, but not necessarily an academic one. But it is more yeah, of no, a, same, same here. I mean, I always, I mean, I, I like to try and be a bit evangelical with a small e, really, about the films that I, I really love. Uh, to, and particularly films that I think, you know, what is the audience for a film that I like? You know, can I introduce it to people who may not have seen it before? Um, so one of the reasons, one of the, one of the books that I, I wrote about, one of the films that I wrote a book about was uh, uh, second to the John Frankenheimer film, uh, which I think has got an audience these days increasingly, but I think for a long time it didn't. And it went remarkably underseen. So I was really keen. I was actually keen to be the first person to write a book about that film, a, a, you know, a dedicated monograph about that film, which I think I managed to do that. And actually the same can be said for the, for the film that we're talking about uh, today as, as well, I think. Uh, although plenty has been written about it, not not in one dedicated volume, which is what, what I managed to pull off. So. Yeah. So, I mean, when... Because obviously there is a connection with horror there. So what is... When did you? What was your entry point into horror, really? Well, I, I, it would be very easy for me to sort of say, which I think probably one or two of your previous guests have said, which is to sort of cite things like the BBC Two weekend double bills, which I, you know, I'm pleased to say I did get exposed to those, and they were really important to me. And the Danny Skipper book, I, I remember getting that one. Um, it was a bank holiday weekend. We went away to Scarborough for the weekend. It was really, really rainy and sort of could not cheer me up. Uh, my parents bought me a copy of that book and I sat there in the back of the car reading that. But that's great. But anyway, I thought, well, no, no, there's, there's stuff that I got into before all of that, which were my kind of early st- early stages. So I'm thinking about and there was probably about three different things, really. One of them was um, a bit of pretext is that my dad used to be a cinema manager. He was a cinema manager for many, many, many years, you know, pre-war and post-war even. Um, and which meant that for the longest time, and you're going to hate me for this, I actually didn't have to pay to see a film until I was about 21. And so I got into see all sorts of films, all sorts of films. And uh, I, I think the film that I got taken to see, whether I, I don't even know if I wanted to see it, but I got taken along. It was a film called Fear is the Key with Barry Newman, who went on to play TV's Petrocelli back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, This boy, he was forever building his house. People might remember that. Anyway, he was (laughs) a star of this film. But before that film showed, they showed, yeah, they showed a trailer for a Dracula movie, a Christopher Lee Dracula movie. And I think it must have been the AD nineteen seventy two, because up at the timing of it would be about about then, sort of late seventy one, early seventy two, I think. And so I remember seeing that in a bit in a person unexpectedly. And I this very, very fixed vision of Christopher Lee's bloodshot eyes in a, a trailer. And it scared that crap out of me. I was being about six at the time. I was definitely not prepared for that. So that was one a very early one. The other thing I remember we, we went on holiday to Blackpool one year, about 74, I think it was, and we went to the Max Museum. Um, Louis Tussauds, or Tussauds um, in Blackpool, it was then, I'm not sure if it still is now. Um, and we went into the Chamber of Horrors, and that was pretty bad. I remember there was one um, sort of tableau of a, a road traffic accident, which was pretty horrific. And I got kind of shepherded through that a little bit, so, you know, didn't see too much of it. There was another, a separate bit which was like a, a room of anatomy exhibits. And uh, they, in the brochure that they gave you at the beginning, it was a kind of a glossy bit to the, to the main public. And then they had this little paper insert with an, a, a, a sort of a numerical list of all the exhibits in this separate section. 
And my parents thought, well, well, you know, we paid the money. We want to see what's in there. I'm just about to take me in. And I remember this guy coming out of, of this area and with it, he had like a raincoat on, a very serious, pale, white face. And he just said to my parents, don't take the boy in there. And it's, <laughs> it's when you deny. So your, your imagination, what the hell? And I remember reading through this numerical list of all these exhibits. It's horrific stuff like smokers, lung an alcoholic's liver and all the manner of, you know, which you had to say the earth horrific. So I'm actually kind of glad I didn't see it, but my mind went into overdrive with the thought of what I'd been denied seeing. So that was another thing. The other thing, the, th the third thing I remember, was there was a joke shop in the, in the town that I lived in when I was a kid. And they had, they were way past my pocket money, but they had on the top shelf this row of, of full head horror masks on display, I mean, they were about, back then they were about 20 pounds, which was King's Ransom back in the mid seventies. So I couldn't afford them. I could, every time I went in for like, you know, some, you know, I, I collected a lot of sort of little rubber fingers and things like that, horror props and things, but these masks always look down at me. Oh, one day I'll, I'll have some horror masks. Um, I did have one or two later on, but anyway, so that was that was a, the third thing that, I, that kind of got me into thinking about, about horror. Um, the only other thing that occurred to me that happened around that sort of time was that I, it must have been one school summer holiday, and I was, you know, what it was like. You get to like kind of a certain level of boredom, and you start taking your toys apart and <laughs> see how they work. And I had, do you remember those laughing bags? Yes, yes. It's like a yellow, yellow thing. There's a thing inside it, and you can kind of feel it. You press this button, and you can hear this recording of this guy laughing, and it, that alone was vaguely horrific. Um, but on this day, I decided to take this component out of the yellow bag and have a look inside it. And I flipped a, a thing, and, and this was like a little, a tiny little record inside, very, very basic technology. Well, there must have been some kind of a stylus inside this component, and it played. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. It's like a little record player. I wonder what's on the other side of the record. So I took it out and put, put it back in again the other way, and it played Birdsong. I lost my mind. I just, were you not expecting something like that? Just freaked me out for some reason. I, th I thought, yeah, I thought you, were, I thought you were going to say there was some creepy voice telling you that I'm going to kill you. <laughs> no, that would have been. Yeah, that would have been. Uh, I probably wouldn't be here. If I, <laughs> 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 it just, it just, you know, it. I think so. I think that was um, the reason I wanted to mention that one. Is because I think it kind of got it developed an appetite for slight oddness rather than necessarily big scares which I think is appropriate to the film that we're going to be talking about, actually, which is much more about the kind of creeping dread thing rather than the kind of startle, bang, horror. I, yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I, I th lots to unpack there, as they say in uh, uh, academic circles. <laughs> I think, you know, first we're not of all... not using that language today, Andrew. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, we're first... Uh, I think, you know, uh, this is not an, a horror thing, but, yeah, Lovely to hear a, a Petrocelli reference. Um, <laughs> I remember it well. I remember Petrocelli. That's one of my earliest memories, Petrocelli. And yes, I'll, I also remember Terry Wogan like taking the piss out of him mercilessly because he never he never finished his house. You know, this poor guy in between cases. He only ever got to do his foundations really that's about it i don't know where he slept yeah yeah no, he never finished it but also uh, uh yeah the uh louis two swords in blackpool asr i remember it well i, I remember 
one of my first proper holidays that wasn't with my family with my my, my first girlfriend we went went to blackpool uh, and i remember it for a lot of reasons uh a it, it you know blackpool uh, as people know who have ever been to blackpool no matter what time of year you go it is the windiest place on the face of the planet <laughs> yes. i had long i had long hair at the time and I remember every single photograph that we had was just, just hair across my face because it was so fucking windy. Um, I also remember um, it was the when we went, it was the day before we went on the Saturday. The day before was when uh, Batman, original Batman 1989 had gone on general release. So that was really exciting. So I went to see that and I went to see it about three times while I was in Blackpool with my girlfriend. Um, and also, I was, ma- uh, you know, still kind of am, but I was massively into Alice Cooper, and Alice Cooper's Trash album came out the same week as well, so that I remember that. But yes, I remember very clearly going to see Louis Two Swords, and because I was a bit older, I did go and see the bits you didn't see. So yes, uh, I remember uh, the the syph- syphilitic members, shall we say, and all I that. Didn't kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That was that was most that is the most impressive part of Louis Tussaud. I don't know what's there now or whether yeah, it's still there, yeah, but yeah. the the other waxworks. I mean, you know, the Beatles and things like that weren't particularly. Uh, I think I could knock a, a Beatle uh, better that looked better than the, than the average uh, wax. I'm sure you probably could. The, the only thing I would say is that that um, it was beaten in the dreadful mistakes by the one at Great Yarmouth. You oh know God, Great yeah, Yarmouth! Yeah, yeah. Oh my Gideon. Um, I went there, we went there in the mid-70s again, or the late 70s, I remember it being terrible then. And I went with a friend in the early 90s, just because it was still there, it's gone now, unfortunately. But And they still had some very, very old waxworks, the, 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 the room with all of the kind of the political, political leaders. There's one of Hitler and one of Mussolini, which are just diabolically bad. Uh, how they got away, but I mean, it's hysterically funny, really, but unintentionally. They were, I mean, some of you just think, why... Why did you even bother to try and fashion these? You may as well have just bought a shop dummy and stuck it yeah, in a well, they, they, have little, they have little name plaques that under the, at their feet so you can recognise. I mean, that's kind of, well, that's cheating, isn't it? It's just a vague, like, well, oh, it's a human being. So therefore, it must be Winston Churchill because it says so on its, on its feet. It's the waxwork version of the, the bad 1970s impressionist, isn't it? You know, who tells yeah. you who they're going to do like 10 yeah. minutes before they do it. Hi. Yeah. Blah 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 here. Well, yeah, well, actually, just told you, you know, to be. <laughs> oh, how we lived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think we'll go into the film we're going to look at then. So, the film we are going to look at is the 1945 Ealing Studios film Dead of Night. Know this part of the world at all? No, I've never been here before. Like some tea, wouldn't you? Do you take milk and sugar? Milk and sugar, Mr. Craig. Milk and sugar, Mr. Craig. Still there. So it isn't a dream this time. I beg your pardon. Yes, it isn't a dream this time. I must be going out of my mind. You see, everybody in this room is. So, Jess. When was the first time you came across this film? So I can give you an exact date day and time uh it was 10 past eight thursday the 19th of may 1977 on bbc2 courtesy of the bbc genome project you won't be too surprised though because i wouldn't i wouldn't actually remember that specific day but i was i was thinking back to when when i must have first seen it 
and that date pretty much tallies with my vague memory of a first screening. It was quite funny actually just to look at the schedule for BBC Two that, that evening. Uh, there was there was bugger all on really. I mean, the program apart from play school at about eleven o'clock in the morning, you know, closed down, open university, and then some political thing at seven o'clock, and then you have the movie, and then nothing much happened. There's nothing on. It was practically the only thing on, and this was not seventy-seven. So the BBC Two was a really threadbare thing, but even even as recent, if you like, as seventy-seven, which kind of surprised me a little bit. But uh, yeah, I, that's when I remember first seeing it, and. Um, like I think probably quite a few of your previous guests, I didn't know anything about it at all. It was just some old movie. Um, I think I benefited from the fact that my dad, being a cinema manager, retained his interest in older films. So I don't know whether he'd seen it before, uh, but it got played on the one TV in the house, B77. You know, I didn't have my own telly to watch it, and we had to watch it on the main TV. And uh, I just remember not sleeping very well that night because this film had this way of implanting anxiety into my mind that I wasn't expecting. It would kind of creep up on you. You may well agree, uh, uh, but it definitely affected me in a way. And I remember thinking about it a lot for a long time before I then, in the 80s, rediscovered it. I think Channel 4 probably screened it in their early days, and I remember seeing it it then and think oh it's that move it's that one i remember this one and so uh, this is this is something a bit kind of special really so i always think it not only is it you know the, the grand dawn of british horror cinema i think it's a keystone in british national cinema it's a really important piece of work um within the ealing canon you know you've got all of the talents there you've got four fantastic directors um, showcasing what they could do. And I think that was the intention of it. I read something when I was researching an uh, interview with, or a piece of work by Michael Balkan, the producer. And that's what basically what he was saying. He wanted this to be this sort of showcase of all of the talents at evening, um, behind and in front of the camera. And I think that's what they actually managed to achieve. So it, even if you're not particularly a fan of horror cinema, I think if you're interested in national cinema, it's a film that has to be seen. But apart from anything else, it's the most fantastic entry point for British horror cinema, it predated the Hammer movies by over a decade. Uh, it was the precursor for all of the subsequent anthology, uh, you know, all of the Amicus movies that came later on. It's it's a really important film, and despite the fact that in a couple of years' time it's going to be eighty years old, I would actually say that unlike some of the films that came later on, it retains its power to really frighten. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of this film. <laughs> The, I mean, yeah, I, I love it, and and it's um, I I don't think I can I didn't really see it for the first time till the late nineties. I don't think so. I I you know, and it, it it was one of those films that I kept hearing about, and and, and you know, but I think it is it's yeah, I think it, I would absolutely agree with you. I think it is a keystone in certainly in British horror cinema. Like you said, there there wasn't really anything. And I think that's to do with, you know, if we go back to the the mid thirties and, and the introduction of the H for horror certificate. For those that don't know, it's it was basically effectively saying if you were under sixteen, you weren't legally allowed to go and see horror films. So that sounds like a, um, a you know a very natural thing that we may, maybe have now. But then it was like film 
going experience was if you were alive you can go and see a film but then they introduced this h for horror certificate which had a massive effect not just because not just on home ground uh, homegrown films but it meant that that you that studios like universal in america would kind of for a little bit stopped making horror films because the british market was so big they couldn't sell them over here so they for a little while they stopped making so many horror films and then it gradually picked up again when they re-released dracula and frankenstein as a double bill but yeah but over here so there wasn't a lot so you'd have even before that there wasn't a lot of british i mean you got the sort of dark thrillers like todd slaughter and things like that and you'd had you know people they blagged kind of boris karloff to do the ghoul in 19 you know in, in 1933 but it wasn't they, they they weren't necessarily doing anything and i think a little bit later on just before um um dead of night you had the heart films like the halfway house which which is which was kind of leaning towards you know it's very supernatural i wouldn't necessarily say it's horror but it was kind of le- it, it feels like a precursor for dead of night yeah. obviously it's got cer- yeah. certain two of the actors are in it as well and so it's got that kind of leaning in there but i think also with dead of night i mean we'll get into the the kind of the detail in a second but it's it is that um you know now, I will guarantee if they if they did uh, uh, if say BBC Four did a a documentary about Ealing Studios, I I bet you this film wouldn't even get a mention. Or if it does, yeah, it'll be a right. sentence. Uh, and and it, it, because they are it, again, it's this part of. And now I'm not saying the Ealing comedies weren't brilliant, and they're, they're absolutely amazing films. Mm-hmm. But Ealing was bigger than that. They did other stuff you know it's 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 a little bit like not not quite as bad but it's a little bit like hammer you know hammer is known for the horror films and, and quite rightly so but they did all the stuff they did all the genres they did war films they did you know historical stuff they did thrillers they did all this kind of stuff so it's kind of this this partly with ealing i think it's this revisionist thing that it's only like you know yeah those comedies they did that, that that's an ealing film but this yeah, this is an incredible film. Not only, like you said, did it kickstart British horror. I think this is way before. I mean, Hammer were around, but they weren't. They were doing other things. They weren't doing horror yeah. films at this point. Um, and, and yeah, like you say, in terms of what Amicus were doing later on, I mean, a few years after this, you had things like Monkey's Paw, which were playing around with the anthologies for, format. But yeah, Amicus really took this idea and really blew it up and, yeah, and yeah. use that as their format for their films yeah, yeah. It, i mean in a way it's like, i feel like it sort of sat in abeyance until amicus came around and thought oh let's, let's do something with this interestingly when i was researching for the book I, I i got the sense that it didn't really perform spectacularly at the box office which it, it may well be that um that he decided it, it, you know, it wasn't the start of a new cycle of, of Films that they wanted to explore, particularly for because it wasn't a great commercial, so it's a huge commercial. So I don't think it did reasonably well, but I don't think it was spectacular success commercially. Um, but I think that might be to do with the fact. I mean, it, it was released in the first week of September, nineteen forty-five. So it's just after VJ Day, uh, which is a little while after VE Day. But I think people were still very much in kind of a wartime mindset. 
um, when that film came out. And so I still don't think there was a huge appetite amongst cinema audiences for films that were going to scare them because they, they've been shitting themselves for the last six years, haven't they? So um, why would they pay the money to, to be frightened by a film? So I just don't think it, it found its, its large natural audience at the time it came out. But I'm, I'm really just, I'm always kind of grateful that it did get made when it when it got made. Because I think it actually has some um, almost unconscious and indirect things to say about the 1940s in Britain, uh, about, you know, the role of, of men in society. Quite a few of the male characters are sort of, you know, almost a bit, reduced and the lesser the shells of their former selves sort of thing uh and psychologically there's a lot of stuff going on there which i think was troubling a lot of stuff around anxiety and i think also sleep deprivation as well i mean it's not it's no accident that the film opening credits open um in front of uh, a one of those henry moore drawings of a figure in the in the uh, underground uh sheltering from the bombs yeah 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 in London, and and I think there's something about troubled sleep, which which go which runs through a lot of the stories in this film, and I think that's not an accident. It's something that wanted to explore. They want to kind of, as I said when I started to talk about it, it, it kept me awake first time I saw it. There's something disquieting about it, something unnerving. Well, I I, I think yeah, I mean, not not to kind of overanalyze, but it's you know. It, this you know it was made in 1945 most people didn't see it till sort of 46 so it's kind of you know it's in the post-war period but you know effectively you know i've never been through a world war thank thank god but it's kind of like you know the whole country would have been so you know they they, they went through this thing of relief but then i guess the collective national sort of post-traumatic stress was kicking in but also you know not only did you have that kind of mo minor well that momentary relief the second world war's over but then very quickly you were plunged into the sort of cold war and like you know suddenly in this i think this is why later on you had first of all you have this kind of this sort of overhang of the second world war and all those kind of worries but then you've got this kind of relief but then you've got the idea of looking forward you know the the the, the war that we've just won that suddenly seems safer compared to a world war three which could happen you know that that's it's a fucked up time i think it's a really odd mm -hmm. sort of situation and and, yeah. and it's, it's a curious few years isn't it really before the 50s came along and, and yeah, because I think you know the other thing you get is the 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 war films from that that period as well. So from the late forties, early fifties, you get some sort of classic stuff, but a lot of it is um, certainly from a class point of view, it, it's very much trying to to reinvent the war as a middle class thing. And it's it a lot of those films aren't about sort of being on the front line; they are about prisoners of war. And it's kind of, and it, it it almost feels like a lot of those films are, um, they resemble more sort of boarding school films, you know. I, you know, they're trying to escape, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel any more serious than that. And and it, again, it's this kind of recreation. Let's celebrate the war we've just won, because looking forward is quite troubling. And I I think you know if you compare us to say Germany who lost the war you know effectively, um, 
they you know if you look at a lot of german culture and german music especially look at like you know that kraut rock and stuff like that it's very forward thinking it's very looking mm. forward whereas a lot of our pop music which was brilliant but you can see particularly in the 70s there's a very it's very much looking back you know it's very much kind of world war Two imagery and stuff and that kind of it's, it's looking back rather than looking forward it's a yeah it's i think our country is fairly unique in that in that we we tend to look back rather than forward. One sort of subgenre of films that I keep meaning to get interested in or, or see more of is the, the German, I think they call them the rubble films of kind of late 40s, early 50s, where they were, they were literally making films in amongst the ruins of the cities. Um, I've, I've seen very little of those films, but it's interesting the fact that filmmakers were still compelled to make movies despite you know, the parlour circumstances, they could have been out. Actually, I think that's a very positive reflection upon those people that they did that. Quite amazing. But yeah, you can send, certainly see that kind of post-war British cinema, that sense of um, slight beginning to puff out of the chest of kind of nationalist where we won and starting to help happen a little bit. And I think that carried on for quite a few years. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, again, you know, uh, yes, obviously this country was bombed and, you know, people were, a lot of people were literally living in bomb sites or next to bomb sites so so there was that that idea of damage to this country physical damage but in comparison to some other parts of the world it, you know maybe maybe we got off i don't want to belittle it but it's, you know slightly lighter than some other countries you know so if you look at you know so if you look at something like italy you know a lot of their infrastructure was destroyed so this is why yeah. you end up with like neo-realism because it was like filmmakers mm -hmm. recognizing like you were saying about germany they still wanted to make films but they realized they had to have more handheld cameras get on the streets employ non-professional actors and, and take it back out so before the war you'd had these kind of very mediocre sort of white telephone films that were just you know very middle class and and very sort of beige and you know not not particularly that interesting and then suddenly after a war there is this trying trying to reclaim their identity and they create these kind of more working class more sort of ordinary films about ordinary people um so it's but yeah but they but we in some ways we had that kind of yeah like you said that that national oomph for, you know we'd won or we'd been part of the the allies and we'd won so there was this sense we could look back with kind of you know false fondness for for what they'd just been through you know uh, even though a lot of people still going through rationing a lot of received pronunciation can be found in, in dead that's one of the things that when i when i show the film to people who haven't seen it before i i always sort of preface it by saying Please be aware that it's made in 1945, and most of the characters will speak in Kirk Glass English, which is sometimes quite hard on the ears to, to fully kind of grasp. Now, that's apart from the main character, um, Walter Craig, played by Mervyn Johnson, of course, is Welsh. And there's quite an interesting thing in there, I think, and it's something that I kind of explore a little bit in the book about, uh, you know, views of people within the country who were a little bit less than the middle class, shall we say, or from parts of the country which weren't necessarily associated with that part of those more middle class parts of society. Yeah, I, I mean, um, it obviously, I, I think that what this film does is, like, like we said, it, 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 even though there had been kind of anthology films before and they've been very, you know, back in the silent days, you had a few anthology films, but I think this 
really sets up the rules for a, for a proper portmanteau anthology film in that we have um we, we've got a classic we've got a house so we've got a location where where characters um assemble uh, so we have a linking narrative a linking or overarching story linking narrative which then splits into then we get stories from people in that location so we each of the stories becomes a separate part of the film that is linked by this this narrative you know this uh walter craig coming in and claiming that he's dreamt all this before um and 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 then we have the sort of conclusion where you know like a lot of the amicus films uh this is not not necessarily as on the nose as some amicus films but it is literally characters or a character realizing that they're kind of in hell and and they're 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 on a loop which is a fucking terrifying concept really not necessarily for that character because he doesn't know he's just getting hints of it but for us the audience it's like fucking hell this is just yeah. going to go on and on and on for all eternity and what what on earth has he done to deserve it yeah that was that was the element for me that you know the, the big takeaway was that just thinking about that just thinking about this character who is in this potentially eternal loop this this mobius strip of existence of, of is it a dream maybe it's a dream maybe it isn't but he's kind of relive everything over and over again which is terrifying <laughs> my good man think nothing of it i'm just about through with that cheap hand anyway oh. you'll be sorry for this later you know yes suppose i will how how would you describe the sort of structure and 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 the plot and the different segments and and, and what is it about what are the kind of key moments and how does it you know how does it play out and why is it sort yeah. of interesting well, i'm glad you referred to the structure there because i've always thought there's no accident that the central character is an architect walter craig uh and in, in the film because um for me anyway when he actually enters into Pilgrim's Farm, the farmhouse. Um, it's almost like the individual stories are rooms within that building. And we as the viewers, we sort of, we pass through them, we go into them and we kind of see things and we come out the other side. So it's almost like we're being led through this succession of rooms in, in this house. And we do see, uh, well, we mainly see this sort of, uh, I guess a kind of a just a living room space within, within uh, the cottage. Uh, but we get some really interesting shots of the the the, this, the scene, the rafters, the exposed beams. Um, so it's a very kind of claustrophobic house, quite small windows, leaded glass windows, uh, that sense of being within this space and a little bit trapped, quite increasingly trapped, actually. Um, but the stories that, that the different characters relate to Walter Craig kind of, kind of are a way of passing through not just the plot but also the space of the film if you like it, it's, it's a, there's a certain kind of three-dimensionality to the experience of watching it you feel like you're actually wandering around this spooky this spooky house uh, i have a really fun story to tell actually about related to this actually that um when i was researching for the book i think i actually found out through twitter at the time there's a guy called simon ralph and i made contact with him and um, he was the son of michael ralph who's the art director uh, on, on Dead of Night, and subsequently worked quite frequently with uh, Basil Dearden, who was one of the one of the four directors of the film, on a, a range of different projects afterwards. 
Um, so he was a lovely guy. He's actually passed away, unfortunately, yeah, but he's a lovely guy. I got to know him. And he invited me over to his house in Bradford-on-Avon because he had over 100 scanned photographs of his father's work. And he, but he didn't know whether he had any drawings um, that would say that they were created for Dead of Night. And he actually was really keen for me to try to identify these because he, he just wanted to know what they all were. And so when I, when I went along on the train, I got off the train and I walked along. And this house where, where Simon Ralph lived was a, was a converted farmhouse. So I had the weirdest sense of my own and thought, I feel like I've been here before. <laughs> it was a very eerie sense of arriving at this house, which mirrored the movie, actually. Um, the great thing was we were able to identify about a dozen of uh, these drawings from Dead of Night, about eight of which actually feature in the, in the final book. And I don't think they'd be published before that. So that was a fantastic find. And, but that, going back to what I was saying about the architecture um, of, of the film and, and the buildings, um, you can absolutely see how this film was designed to, to feel really quite claustrophobic. Um, a lot of the very, very kind of narrow and enclosed spaces. And they seemed with the lighting that they used, they seemed to get narrower and closer and tighter until, you know, at the end, as I'm sure you know, kind of, it turns left and goes all insane, really, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, architecture is crucial, I think, to, to this to this movie. It's it's weird actually because uh, I recently went to see um, Saltburn. I don't know if you've seen that, um, but that is about you know again it's a character going to a particular um, manor house to stay. Uh, but it's interesting. It's got its faults. I, I liked a lot of it. But the interesting thing is that the director's chosen, I mean, it's a digital production, but it's it's in a 60 mil sort of format. So what you've got is you've got all these grand, you've got, you know, lots of land and you've got these grand, this grand house and these grand rooms, enormous. But because it's filmed like that, we, we instantly mm. feel the claustrophobia within these grand places. Yes. It's a really yeah. I I interesting way of, of looking at it. This has been an interesting development in recent cinema, I think, is, is a return to um, a kind of a square uh, picture ratio. I mean, I think of something like The Lighthouse, the Lighthouse. Yeah. Very kind of like square. You'll see, you'll somehow see less. I think for some of the films, ratio films, is that you feel more immersed in them somehow and, and you become less um, conscious of the edges of the, of the frame. You yeah. feel yourself falling into them somehow more. With a, with a you know, a cinemascope movie, it's so bloody wide. You just, your head, you, you know, you're getting neck ache from looking at the either end of the picture. I want to focus on the, you know, if you want to focus on the story and the plot and the characterization, I think there's something to be said for having the, the narrower picture ratio, which, of course, this movie made in the mid-40s definitely, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, someone like Mark Jenkins more recently, you know, he's taken it to the nth degree, really, because so he's using like literally old film stock and uh, and yeah. then doing all the sound in sort of post-production, really. So you get in this really sort of, you know, um, exaggerated kind of foley and all this kind of stuff. And it has this real, it, they are very modern films, but they have this very old fashioned charm as well. It's, it's they're brilliantly done, I think. And it's mm -hmm. easy to be cynical and say, oh, it's just using it. 
but no, they're, they're, they're done with such passion, uh, you know, and, and it, it, the aesthetic is really important. But, it, you know, something like Bait especially is just really, really nice. But NS Main as a kind of folk horror-ish type haunting yeah. sort of story is brilliant as well. Yeah, and I think, I think you're right. It is that, back, you know, like a closed space. It is, it's almost kind of like making big places feel small and, and feeling confined. That is that's the essence of horror i think you know it's not you know this is what people don't understand and, it, and this is possibly why people don't you know modern horror fans perhaps wouldn't necessarily respond to this because it's not about characters wading around in in oceans of blood or anything like that it's not about gore it's nothing to do with that this is what you mentioned earlier this is the creeping dread and i think that part of what makes this film so effective is because it doesn't it, it it doesn't necessarily have one tone we have comic comic sections we have although you know the golfer section which is often criticized and is often sort of seen as being more throwaway uh you know i'm not the first person to say this but if you think about what that film is that that's that story is implying it's probably the most disturbing out of them all really this in, idea in a way yeah it is it's also, I think, it, it creates a brilliant kind of false step or false sense of security, relative security, before it hits you with the final story, which is the, for many people is the most memorable, the Venture of the Stummy story. Um, so it serves a purpose, but also back in, in, at that point in time, I think a lot of films, the, the, there was a certain degree of audi audience expectation for a sense of variety, really. So you've got, you've got a song, you've got, um, is it the Hullalooba song, song at the beginning of the Venture of the Stummy? So it's a little bit of musical. You've also got a little bit of comedy with, you know, um, the golfing story. So that's what audiences are some, to some extent expecting. It's, so to modern audiences, it might seem like the weakest one because it, it hasn't got those same kind of gothic trappings. But I think it's got a role to play. I've, I've never been one of these people who criticises it. As fans. It's, it serves a purpose. No, no, it's great. I, I think they're all really good. And I think, you know, they, they all fit perfectly together in this weird jigsaw, you know. Um, yeah. I, I, and I think it's, and I think the, the other thing that's really deceptive about it, I mean, obviously you, you will understand and you'll have an understanding of this because of the book and everything, but it is, I think it's brilliantly done. Um, you don't notice it the first time, you know, you have to watch it a few times, but uh, the way that this is put together visually is in, it, it, it's incredible. This is what it doesn't get credit for a lot. There's a lot of brilliant visual foreshadowing in this film. And, and it's not about, so now you could kind of film most of the film digitally or, or you know, CG, and then you could go back and then re, redo this and make it look as though we planned this. But no, this was actually filmed in the cat. And all of these sections, you know, a lot of them were filmed by different directors, but it, it comes together so well. If you, I mean, imagine having four different directors now and having exactly. something yeah. so, so brilliantly constructed that works uh, as all those pieces work perfectly well together yeah. it's pretty seamless really you know you, you struggle to tell who's made what which is which is as it should be to be honest with me but another thing i i, I love about it is that uh, it it deals in uh, this is part of the creeping dread thing it deals in a lot of near silences quite often um which isn't really talked about that much in horror um cinema writing particularly but 
silence or near silence can be an incredibly powerful tool. Um, so I've, the first of the of the individual stories, which is, is the, the hearse driver, yeah. uses it, I think, brilliant. I always think, people ask me, what is your favourite story from the film? They probably expect me to say, oh, the haunted mirror or the ventriloquist dummy story, but actually the hearse driver is my personal favourite. It's the shortest of the stories, but I absolutely love it. And the reason, one of the reasons why I love it is because when, it, well, very quick place of the story, a racing driver crashes, ends up in hospital with his head bandaged, so he's a little bit delirious. And then he has an unusual experience where he's recuperating. He's in the middle of the night or a late night. The nurse has said goodnight to him. He's reading a book in his bed. There's a radio playing in the room outside. You can hear the sound of his, uh, the clock on his bedside table ticking away. And then suddenly, it's almost like the room becomes a vacuum. Almost like the air is sucked out of the room. It's like a vacuum. You know, the music stops. The clock stops. The clock stops at a different time, which itself is weird. And he, you know, there's a shot of him getting up out of the bed. <clears throat> For some reason, he's compelled to walk to the windows with these sort of drawn curtains. And you just see this shot of him come from behind, and the lighting is astonishing. And then you get this quick shot of about two seconds of just these curtains sort of flapping gently in the evening breeze. Just perceptible, hardly perceptible movement. And I just think it's one of the most chilling individual little shots I can think of in cinema because you think, what is he going to see when he opens those curtains? Of course, yeah. it's a Victorian in broad daylight unless it's totally weird yeah i mean that that's the thing is you know no nobody leaps out and stabs him or anything like that it's just this 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 unnerving experience as far as we know it's the middle of the night and then suddenly it's broad daylight and he's looking at this victorian hearse yeah it, it it's it's really well done i, I really <laughs> like that segment as well um but you know the, then then we've got <clears throat> The haunted mirror, I think, you know, and you can see echoes in that in a lot of, you know, you can see kind of echoes of that in in some of the the Amicus films as well. It's very, very. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, so, great. Yeah. you've got the Christmas story between the driver yes, and the, yes. the haunted mirror, which is a it being close to Christmas. Or worth mentioning that one. I think again, it doesn't get quite the love that it deserves, but it's very unsettling at times as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean that. Yeah, that's very. I mean, again, you, you you've got. Um, the the hearse story which is very it's a very short it's very it's like a very sort of very very short version of a kind of amicus style storyline that you'd get later on you know they they'd play yeah. around with those kind of images definitely um but the yeah the christmas story i think is uh, the christmas party is very much that's or you know that that's kind of leading in. It's very Mr. James ish, you know. It's that kind, yeah. you know, or or it's like Mr. James stroke uh, Dickens kind of Christmas story. It's that 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 kind of yeah. vibe. Um, so you, you it's the you, one story that's based on real events because the yeah. constant murder case, um, which the, the 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 novel The Suspicions of Mister Witcher was written many years later about the same case. Yeah, um, but that that also has a a moment of, of quiet in it as well when Sally and House enters the attic room and she's just looking around the room and all she can see is a small child weeping in a chair. It's an absolute, it's a nightmare image, isn't it? But subtle. And uh, again, just absolute goosebumps. And, and, and yeah, you know, who doesn't really like a, a story about some some kids creeping around a, a big house and finding an attic room and a, a, a ghostly weeping child <laughs> come on um yeah i i yeah like I say the, the haunted mirror i think you know that that's a really 
I mean, again, yeah, okay, it works out okay sort of in the end, but it's just, it's so fucking, you know, it could go either way. It's such a, it's such a horrible situation that these characters are why and it you know it does play right it, even you know because if it's if it wasn't necessarily placed in this film where we know it's about supernatural stories you know there is another way this this that story could turn out a different way this is simply a guy having a nervous breakdown you know and and, and that yeah, yeah, that yeah. is an interesting thing in, in, in itself i mean all, all of these kind of you know, it's interesting. Yeah, like you say, it's interesting. We've got the architect as a character, but it's also very interesting to have the psychiatrist. You know, it's kind of um, dealing with the, you know, that, that kind of twenties, thirties obsession with Freud and all that kind of stuff. So, so that that's the the the, the hangover yeah. from that. But it is also, you know, a lot of these the stories could be interpreted as as nervous breakdowns of various characters you know it could all yeah, be yeah. just a, 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 a fan as I said, it's you know we, a lot of this is about sort of the malehood in the 40s and people you know men returning from from war and you know what what role they have in society to return to and i think there's quite a lot of that in, in, in sort of most of the stories actually my favorite bit in the haunted mirror this is again another story that kind of rapidly spirals into something bizarre and scary but my favorite bit in that is when he's just had the mirror this this antique mirror delivered and he's standing in front of it with his his wife played by googie with us and he just says something like what was that and you don't even on you don't on the screen you don't actually see anything you just see his reflection but he just looks to one side it's like, you see something and that's what oh, don't do for months again the imagination starts to go into overdrive what did he see and of course, we actually do see what he sees, but before you see what he sees, you imagine what he's seeing, and that is more scary to me. Yeah, that that's a very it's almost a kind of Lovecraftian idea, isn't it? This thing that's not on the page, it's not on the screen, it's somewhere in between <clears throat> what they're saying and your imagination. And that that is because no one can portray on screen something worse than you can imagine. You know, so that that is always the the best way to go. Uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a brilliant sort of segment. I, I love the haunted mirror because it's again, you know, uh, being a horror fan and having watched, you know, from beyond the grave and various other things, but particularly this one as well. Um, always buy a new mirror, folks. Don't <laughs> buy an <laughs> antique mirror. No matter how pretty it looks and how nice it might look in your Art Nouveau bedroom. Don't it's not worth the hassle. It really is no way. Not. Definitely not. It's it's kinda of, it did for antique mirrors what Psycho did for showers. Yes, yes, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I, I you know, I think I think we need we we've, we've got to talk about what I think well that is definitely my I mean I love all these segments, but obviously the most sort of famous and probably the one that's talked of the most is the the final segment followed by the hell that follows that, you know, yeah. which is the ventriloquist dummy starring a, a young Michael Redgrave, which is still, despite how many times people have said this and despite how many times people have hyped this up, I'd still say it's one of the most terrifying stories ever put to camera because it, it uh, and michael redgrave in that um this, his, his acting ability i mean he's, he's almost acting out of time there for me i, I look at his performance the nuance of his performance even compared to his fellow players in, 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 in any given scene and he's doing things with his face and his and his hands and his body that 
you wouldn't see in cinema really for another 10, 15, 20 years particularly. It, there's, there's a level of subtlety that he brings to that part, which is really challenging because the whole thing is no more than about 20 minutes long. So there's not a lot of, you know, sort of screen time to play with. And yet the kind of the gravitas that he brings to it with his performance is quite astonishing, actually. Um, so, yeah, I, it doesn't, it's no surprise that it's, it's many people's favourites. Favorite, uh, segment. Well, because you know, like like the other segments, it can go either way. And actually, uh, if we examine the ventriloquist dummy segment, you know, if you know, we can either accept that Michael Redgrave's character's gone mad, uh, or we can accept that this is a supernatural occurrence. And actually, I think. The cop out is to accept it as a supernatural occurrence. That 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 lets you off the hook slightly. Actually, to accept yeah. that he is mad, that is the more frightening reading yeah. of this because it is such um, a brilliant performance. It it's so terrifying. I I don't even know. You know, like you said, this is before Hammer. This is before any of that stuff. This is this, this is it, it's like you said. It's out of time because you know we'd had all the kind of universal horror stuff and that that's brilliant you know don't get me wrong i love carlos lugosi and all that but this is something this is you know before psycho this is this is kind of like this is madness writ large on the screen and it, it is really chilling yeah, i agree with you it's best read as a basically a massive psychiatric breakdown but in, in thinking about it from that perspective you then, as a viewer, you almost have to think, like, okay, what I'm, I'm actually seeing this from that perspective. I'm, it's almost like I'm, I'm inhabiting the mind of this character as he's experiencing the world and what's happening, which in itself is just a, a scary thing. And, and really, again, it really quite ahead of its time, I think. Um, not unique, but I think certainly ahead of its time in many respects. So, so I think it's, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I absolutely... I absolutely love it. <laughs> it's just <laughs> so it's the one I had to pick out to show to anybody who, who was not familiar with the film. It's, it's clearly the one that you'd have to sort of show to people. Yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, and obviously it kind of set up uh, that idea. Obviously, we get magic later on, and a few other things that kind of tap into this possessed um, ventriloquist dummy stroke man having a nervous breakdown with a doll type stories you know all of this kind of i mean even stuff like chucky you know you know charles plays kind oh, of yeah. tapping into that you know it's very much whether tom holland was aware of dead or night or not i don't know but um it, it, you know it, it it's got that vibe um but well, it's I, un uncanny valley isn't it really i mean it's yes. one, of, one of the first examples of that sort of thing absolutely uh, yeah Animacy from inanimacy, something springing to life when you're not expecting it is just uh, automatically terrifying. Yeah, and then kind of when you think it can't get any worse, uh, we get this mad ending, which is kind of taking where you know Walter Craig realizes he's in some sort of trapped in a nightmare, but we as the audience get fragments of other stories mixed together with other stories and everything gets it's almost like everything we've seen before has been sort of uh compacted and then thrown up on the screen and it's sort of everything move and it's not often it in fact it, it's it's so rare that a film handles the idea of a nightmare well uh 
you know, David Lynch does it brilliantly and a few other directors do it great. But this is a really early example of getting it absolutely right. It's not because it's not something it doesn't do the obvious things. It and, you know, seeing the ventriloquist dummy actually get up and start running across the screen and things, you know, it's it's, God, it's terrifying. It really is. That last yeah. those last scenes are just they are a, literally a nightmare. It, it It's a but horror show. They are. That, that very scene, actually, where you know, Hugo the, the dummy gets up off the chair and walks across the cell to, to strangle Walter Craig. I think often when I, when I used to watch it initially, I, you know, your eye fi fixes onto the dummy. But actually, if you look in the centre of the picture, at the cell door, you have um, a lot of the the audience who were at the, the ventriloquist show, and you see that again as part of this Constantina bit at the end there. They're kind of we really weirdly crowded around the edges of the store, look at peering in. And, yes, and that is that was really unnerving little uh, uh, element to, the, to, the, to that particular uh, section at the end there, which you don't necessarily always notice. And then, of course, you get strangled by by Hugo and wakes up, sort of strangled, sort of uh, strangling himself a little bit in, in his bed back in London. Um, and then it all starts again. Yeah, and he gets a call, and he's got to go to this house, and we pull up with the same place that we started. It, it's, it's, this, it's a masterpiece. It really, really is. That word, that word is overused. I know it is, but it really is a fucking British masterpiece. It, it's, you know, it sets. It kind of just sets the bar for British horror films. Uh, I'm not going to say that without this you wouldn't have Hammer, because I think you probably would have had Hammer films, but it does set. The bar, and and I, and I, and I know horror films or uh, horror fans are aware of this, and horror fans talk about this, and you know, it is something we enjoy. But it it is a pity that it's not enjoyed by more people or, or appreciated by more people, not because it's an essay yeah. horror film, but just because it's a brilliantly constructed piece of cinema. Yeah, I totally totally agree. I think a lot of people are just. We're going to be put off by its very age and um, just maybe the kind of the initial impression you get from the acting styles that are presented on screen. And I think that can be a bit too much for some of their audiences, quite honestly. But if they just persevere, uh, my God, does it reward uh, a viewing. Uh, it really, really does. I, I completely agree. It's an absolute masterpiece. Mm. So, Jez, um, where can people uh, get your books from? Oh, well, I mean, there's the obvious um, conglomerate beginning with A, which we won't mention. But if, if um, for the Dead of Night book and the books, the other books that are published by Liverpool University Press, so I wrote one on Thing uh, in the devil, same Devil's Advocates range. And also I wrote, co-wrote um, a book on Seconds, the John Franklin Armour film from 66, Again, in Liverpool University Press's Constellations range, they're available through Liverpool's website uh, at competitive rates. I think um, as much you want to pay, really. <laughs> um, so that, that's my, those are the main ones that I've, I've had published um, uh, with my name on the cover. I've contributed a variety of other things to other people's books um, quite recently, actually. So um, uh, Emma Westwood, who I co-wrote the second book, which she wrote a book, or she edited a book about Bride of Frankenstein. I've got a chapter in that, which is really, really nice to be invited to do that. Um, what else recently? Um, so I've got a chapter in The Ravage Company to Folk Horror, uh, which came out a couple of months ago. That was nice to do that one. I've got I think next April, 
from the same editing team. They've got a book coming out called Horrifying Children. And in that, I last chapter, which is all about watching TV in the early 1970s when you're poorly off school at home and you've taken some sleepy cough mixture and watching daytime TV programmes when you're off school. Imagine writing 5,000 words on that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes, uh, you're stumbling across these weird things when you're sort of drugged on 70s medication, when you're yeah. uh, poorly round at your nice nans. Um, that, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a surprisingly commonly shared experience. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, did you... Am I making this up? I, don't, I, I get confused and I get things mixed up. Did you contribute something to Scarred for Life? Um, yes, but not quite yet. So I've actually written a new essay about the thing, which will be appearing in volume three when it finally comes out. So any Scarred for Life aficionados will know that it's been forever since the second one came out. When's the third one coming out? Well, um, Dave and Steve were taking their merry old time to do it. They are working on it. It will come out when it's ready, and it'll, it'll be fantastic. So when that does come out, yes, I will have a piece in that volume when it finally appears, hopefully next year. I'm very jealous. Uh, I'd love to write something Scarred for Life. I, I fucking love those books. If anybody's not entirely sure about Scarred for Life, I mean, they've got a Facebook page and a website and all this kind of stuff, but they... They initially did a book uh, in, about the 1970s called Scarred for Life, and it was about he's looking at things like public information films, Doctor Who, Children of the Stone, all these things that were kind of specifically made for kids, but were absolutely terrifying. Uh, but also, it looks at like you know, you sort of uh, the the dodgy sitcoms and stuff like that. It's brilliant. And then the Scarred for Life Volume Two is looking a similar sort of stuff, but with the 80s, um, and it's it it it's very very detailed it's brilliantly written and it's not just kind of throwaway sort of nostalgia it's it's really well researched and, and, and it's a fantastic read i can't can't recommend those books enough um, and they're really thick as well they're real doorstop yeah books, they definitely so. are yeah um okay so obviously uh, as usual please uh, you know visit our fake facebook page join in talk to us uh, if you do listen to these podcasts, I mean, we aren't we charging you nothing. You've got these podcasts for note. So if you can and you if you do enjoy these podcasts, please give us a review. Uh, some people have written some nice reviews, which is great because it really helps with like distribution and things like that. I know it's a really boring thing to say, but it does because I love doing these podcasts and I like to continue to do it. So, yeah, if you can help give us a review, that would be brilliant. Um, it just remains for me to say thank you to my guest this week, Jess Conley. Thank you for coming on. And it's short notice as well. So I really, really appreciate that. So thank you. And it's been a fascinating episode. And, and uh, yeah, I, 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 and thanks for the choice because I do love Dead of Night. Yeah, well, it's an absolute pleasure to talk about it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. So remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. You look like you're dying for a nice cup of tea for terror. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. Mm -hmm.